What's up, guys? Welcome to The Strength Connection. I'm Michael Krakowski, and I'm here to connect you with the top minds in the world of strength to share stories, insights, and experiences to help you become stronger every day. To stay up to date with everything happening with the show, you can go to www.thebreakthroughsecrets.com, where you'll get updates on all new episodes as soon as they drop, including all new programs and playbooks developed from each episode of The Strength Connection. So today, I am fortunate enough to connect with Patrick McCowan, creator of Oxygen Advantage, world-renowned author, including The Breathing Cure and Atomic Focus, both that have been released this past year. The work that Patrick is doing, I would say, is the most, if not definitely one of the most important things we need in our lives, especially when it comes to physical performance, and that is how we breathe, and even better, how we should be breathing. Breath is a hot topic, especially in the performance world, and there are many different modalities that people have put out recently regarding breath control, maximizing cardiovascular efficiency, and high performance techniques. But no one is looking at the fundamental pieces of breathing, the functional side of breathing, and how we can improve and train our breath patterns for better sleep, cognitive performance, memory, physical performance, and fighting disease. Patrick is the one that's doing all of those. So in this episode, Patrick spoke in detail about the Bolt score and the MBT test, nose breathing and the vital performance of it, functional breathing techniques, and the big issues we are facing with the ability to focus and the ability to hold attention, which is a direct correlation to poor breathing habits. Patrick's a true genius when it comes to this topic. It is a true blessing to be able to connect and learn from him. Go check out his books wherever you wherever books are sold, and you can go to theoxygenadvantage.com for even more content from Patrick. Lastly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and leave an awesome review. It does so much in helping spread the message of strength, and we greatly appreciate your support. You guys are awesome. So without further ado, we'll get on with the show. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys, and I'll catch you on the inside. And we are live. Patrick, so great to see you. And thank you so much for the time. Likewise, Mike. It's a yeah. pleasure. Absolutely. Like, as I was telling you off air uh, before, since the last time we spoke and I first learned about the Bolt score and really the foundational breathing exercises, my first test, I got about, I think, 14 seconds on the Bolt score, which if you haven't seen is not very good. <laughs> and I've got that up to over 31 seconds now of just working on these exercises. So everything we're going to go about, anybody listening, this stuff works just right off the bat. I'll just point that out. So thank you so much for, for everything that you do, Patrick. No, no, it's a, it's a good achievement as well. Mm-hmm. Because people, you know, the Bolt score increasing it, it, it takes some degree of work, but it's worth it. And I suppose people are wondering what on earth is the Bolt score? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it stands for the body oxygen level test. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a breath hold time test. And basically the individual takes a normal breath in and out through their nose and pinches their nose. And we time it in seconds until they feel the first definite desire to breathe. So mm-hmm. when they resume breathing, their breathing should be fairly normal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a measurement of functional breathing patterns. If your breathing is optimal, your bold score must be greater than 25 mm-hmm. seconds. And exactly. if your breathing is suboptimal, the both score is less than 25 seconds. Yeah. And I think it's so fascinating the work that you do because I think, you know, breathing now, I, you know, I guess it's, you know, quote unquote popular now. It's like it's, it should be popular for, for all of time. It's the thing we do more than anything, you know, except for probably think thoughts. Um, but what the, the work that I love that you do, Patrick, with Oxygen Advantage and your book is about really focusing on the, as you said, the functional breathing, which is like the normal breathing that we do on every day, where a lot of programs out there that have done very good stuff like Wim Hof and stuff, but I think it sees more of like the high intensity base work, like going for the high performance, when in reality, focusing on the breathing that you're doing every day, just the normal breathing, breathing during sleep, all that stuff is what you've really put the most energy and effort into putting out to the public. And I think that's going to, that benefits people more than, than anything else of really getting to that work. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a foundation, you know, like in terms of doing hyperventilation and breath holes, like that's, it looks sexy and people want mm-hmm. to be seen to be doing something. And as well as they fail to realize that the, the, the basic fundamentals of your breathing is how you're breathing every moment of the day. Mm-hmm. And you can change states. You can improve your sleep. Um, you can really impact many functions and systems by changing breathing patterns. Now, we do stressor exercises and we do long breath holes and we've used long breath holes for 20 years. And like I've worked with kids as young as four years of age, teaching them breath holes, especially children with asthma, et cetera. 
Um, yeah, so I think it is. I think it's the one thing that's overlooked is your everyday breathing pattern. Yeah, it's overlooked in most studios. And I would say, you know, if you think of I really what's in my mind at the moment is yoga. Mm. And millions of people are doing yoga. And if the yoga instructor was versed in the dimensions of breathing, they could transform the lives of people with respiratory issues, people with sleep issues and people with anxiety, just if they understood that breathing has three dimensions and understanding the physiology of breathing in terms of the balance between oxygen and carbon dioxide, understanding the autonomic nervous system in terms of when you want to activate a stress response, when you want to activate the relaxation response, and also teaching their students how to breathe outside the studio. Like it doesn't make sense to me to be teaching somebody breathing techniques inside a studio and saying nothing about how you should breathe outside the studio, you know? So I like, we still have a long, long way to go, Mike. Yeah. Um, because breathing is normally taught according to traditions and people can be very, very resistant to change mm-hmm. yeah. across all sectors, but especially in breathing, you know, that I often feel that once a person or once an instructor has a particular breathing technique, and maybe I was guilty of this as well for many years, and it's just after so many years and working with so many different people, you mm-hmm. realize that the more tools you have in the toolbox, the better. Because it just gives you a better, you know, and even looking at long COVID, long COVID has really knocked people, stopped them dead in their tracks. Mm -hmm. And we can use breathing exercises to help with the recovery of long COVID. Mm -hmm. But this is where a good toolbox is very important because, you know, when the nervous system is taxed, what exercises can you do to stimulate the vagus nerve to bring a better balance and Mm -hmm. to to reduce sympathetic drive, to increase parasympathetic drive. So yeah, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's nice to see that breath work is really, has really mm-hmm. got out there. So when you say uh, like have a bigger toolbox and you said it, is that more of like the, there's different methods of getting into different you know states by using breathing? Cause a lot of times I think it's still people say like, Oh, if you're stressed, just take a deep breath, which is, you know, in through the nose, <laughs> yeah, out through the mouth, which I think in a lot of yoga studios as well, it's, you know, they get into the breathing and I think you're so right there. It's like, it is an environment where you can teach because people are going into that thinking that they are mm. going to do that work. So it is a perfect opportunity to teach some of these methods, but I think some still falls short, but a big thing that you're saying, I think a lot is about the the mouth breathing. And that's one of the main issues that we have. And so it's really about just breathing and just focusing on breathing through the nose. Is that correct? Yeah, in and out through the nose, because the nose is the only organ in the human body that does anything in terms of the breath. Mm. You know, you can go to a mirror and uh, open your mouth and look into the mouth and ask yourself, when you breathe through your mouth, what happens? What does the mouth do in terms of the airflow going into your throat? Nothing. All it is is a, is a hole. So mm-hmm. the nose is the only organ. And, you know, there's so much communication. There's so much going on here that's way beyond what we, um, you know, realize um, most recently, it was shown that um, individuals' visual spatial awareness improves when they breathe in and out through your nose. Now, you can think of that in sports. You know, you've got a guy or a gal out in the football field, and they're, they're, they have their attention on, on the ball, but they also need to scan what's going on around them. Mm-hmm. And the human nose protected the human species for a long time because sniffing out danger, for example. And if you see it in the animal kingdom, a deer who's eating grass, mm-hmm. the deer isn't breathing through the mouth because if the deer is breathing and eating, breathing through the mouth, it's not going to pick up on the scent of a predator. Mm-hmm. So it's fundamentally, I think, part of our evolution, we select our mates, for example, through this, the communication that comes in through the nose. Um, really? Nasal, yeah. It's, 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 it's part of who we select. And there was a... There was an interesting study that was published in 2012. Mm-hmm. Women who selected their partners while on the pill. When they come off the pill, they judged their partners differently. And it was apparently because of the changes in the olfactory system in the uh-huh. nose. So women have two choices. Either they go on the pill or they meet their partners off the pill. One or right. two <laughs> so, yeah. so that was an interesting one. And there's a... You know, in terms of oxygen uptake in the blood, people don't realize that when you breathe in and out through your nose, mm-hmm. that the PO2, which is the pressure of oxygen in the blood, increases by 10%. And this is known since 1988. 
if you do physical exercise with your mouth closed, yes, the air hunger is a little bit stronger because your nose is a smaller entry point. Mm -hmm. But because the nose is a smaller entry point, carbon dioxide increases in the blood because it cannot leave the body so quickly through the nose as through the Mm -hmm. mouth. And that's why you feel more of an air hunger. However, when carbon dioxide is increasing, it's, it's increasing blood circulation, improving blood circulation and increasing oxygen delivery throughout the organ, throughout the body. And one sports scientist has looked into this. Is, his name is Professor George Dallam, D-A-L-L-A-M. And he's from Colorado State University. And he did a study that was published in 2018. He got 10 recreational athletes. And he said to the athletes, I need you breathing exclusively through your nose for the next six months. And then we'll test you. There's no point in getting 10 recreational athletes and say, all right, guys, now I want you to nose breathe and I'm going to test you. Of course, the results are going to be hampered Mm -hmm. because they're doing something that they haven't done before. Right. It's too short of a sample time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So with six months of training, though, the body had adjusted to nasal breathing and the individuals with nasal breathing were able to achieve 100% of their work rate intensity breathing through the noses, through the mouth, but they had 22% less ventilation. So there's a tremendous economy there because if you can do the same work rate with 22% less ventilation, it means that you're less likely to gas out. You, ah, you okay. have an energy saving in terms of, you know, because every breath that we take, there's an energy cost in terms of breathing. Mm-hmm. And if you think of a fit person, a good athlete is able to do more with less. And we as human beings, we should be efficient with our breathing. Mm-hmm. What can you do for a given level of breathing? What can you mm-hmm. do for a given level of air? And also, if you have a good tolerance of carbon dioxide, your breathing is light and slow and generally low. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be good breathing during sleep, good breathing during physical exercise mm-hmm. and good breathing during rest. And this then translates into anxiety, panic disorder, people with depression, and many conditions whereby the autonomic nervous system, if the autonomic nervous system is in the state of stress, is impacting those conditions, diabetes, mm-hmm. epilepsy, high blood pressure, low blood pressure, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, respiratory issues, and through the breath, by improving everyday breathing patterns, you can help with these conditions. Do we know why we just went from, I mean, cause if nose breathing is just such a, a natural thing, it's the, uh, it's the airway that we are supposed to utilize for breath yet, you know, so much has happened over, you know, time of now we breathe through the mouth. I think one out of every two adults breathes through their mouth, you know, through sleep. And I know sleep apnea is a huge issue and everything as well. Do we know like why, like with the evolution of how we got into just more mouth breathing over time? Yeah, it seems to be related to the change in diet. And there was a book that was written back in the 1930s called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. It was written by a Dr. Weston Price. He was a dentist and he traveled around the world and he took photographs and research. Now, his research could be criticized, but there, bear in mind that research collecting was a lot different back 90 mm-hmm. years ago than it is today. Exactly. But he took a lot of samples and he made a lot of observations and he noticed that the modern face was changing and the modern face was becoming narrow. Children were developing crooked teeth and crooked teeth are not, it's not because the teeth are too big. The problem is that the jaw has not developed and because the jaw has not developed, that there's not enough room in the mouth for the teeth. So some orthodontists will say that the teeth are too big, so let's extract teeth. But others are saying that The problem is not that the teeth are too big. The problem is the jaw is too small. So the jaws are too small. So let's develop the jaws. So Weston Price's observation was that when people changed over to a processed diet, the standard diet that we see in the Western world today, first generation children became mouth breeders. That's all it took, one generation. Mm. And with that, the shape of the face is changing. And more importantly is that the airway is getting smaller. And when the airway is getting smaller, and I'm talking about the space at the back of the mouth, the oropharynx, the space at the back of the nose, the nasopharynx, and the throat itself, that when the airway is getting smaller, we are more susceptible to sleep problems. And when we are more susceptible to sleep problems, it can impact our mental health. Because 
you know, the reality of it is we will all every now and again wake up feeling lousy. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a day every now and again that, you know, we just didn't get a, a correct sleep, maybe because of interruptions or you're staying in a hotel room or whatever. And that day, you're not going to have the same focus. You're not going to have the same concentration. You're not going to have the same attention span mm-hmm. and you're not going to be in a good mood. Right. What about people who have sleep disorder breathing all the time? And what about children with their brain developing that if they're having sleep disorder breathing, it can impact the development of the brain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the human species, we may have, you know, people might say, well, we're, we've really done well as a human species. Well, maybe we haven't because anatomically it's been screwed up. How many kids Mm -hmm. need orthodontics? How many kids need braces in school? You know? Huh? No, that's so interesting with this, actually the, the fate, the change of the face actually mm. over time, you can actually see the differences in the skull. I remember, I, I believe I read um, James Nestor's book when I read yours and he talked about that as well. It's actually the archaeology, looking at the different skulls way long ago and how they all had perfect teeth. They had perfect jaw lines and perfect yeah. structures. And that all came from the aspects of mouth breathing. Yeah. And- mouth breathing was a contributory factor because if the mouth is open, the tongue isn't resting in the roof of the mouth. Mm-hmm. And if the tongue is not resting in the roof of the mouth, it's the pressures exerted by the tongue, which help to shape the palate and mm-hmm. uh, also help to, to direct the growth of the face forward. Back in 2010, I was lucky enough. I went over and back to Dr. John Mew. He's in, based in the UK mm-hmm. and he's, he's currently about 92 years of age. And he allowed me to sit in, in his clinic um, over the course of many months. And I used to watch him work with himself and Dr. Mike Mew, who's his son. And the two of them would work with the kids and help to develop the growth of the jaws. And I was writing a book back then called Buteco Meets Dr. Mew because I was fascinated mm-hmm. that John Mew was talking about the importance of nose breathing for 50 years. And none of this information is new. But there has been very few pioneers who have been putting it out there. Mm-hmm. And he was one such person. But, you know, if you look at the, the AOMT, the Academy of Orofacial Myofunctional Therapy, and Mark Moeller, and the work that different people have done, Dr. William Hang from Agora Hills in California, Dr. Kevin Boyd, Mariana Evans, there, there are some wonderful people who have been really, really pushing this out there. And the American Academy of Physiological Medicine and Dentistry. And, you know, they know all of this stuff, but yet it hasn't trickled down to the average general practitioner or general dentist. And I think it's crying out for attention. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is because I was one of those kids with mouth breathing. I was one of those kids with sleep disorder breathing. And there's a lot of pressure put on youngsters nowadays to do well academically. Mm -hmm. Like we're almost being told, that if you don't do well in your grades, you're going to be sweeping the streets for the rest of your life. That's the idea. Not that there's anything wrong with sweeping streets, but Mm -hmm. you know yourself that parents, parents want children to reach their full potential, but yet there's no information put out there about sleep. And when I'm talking about sleep, it's not about, oh, don't use your device late at night and have a cool and airy bedroom. All that stuff is good. The elephant in the room is breathing in and out through the nose. That's the key. Yeah, that's what I thought was so interesting about uh, your work with your new book, The Atomic Focus, about that with sleep is where it's like the usual suspects that we say all the time, sleep in a dark room, cool it down, maybe even take a hot shower, all the stuff that is about prepping yourself for getting to sleep faster. And we think like that's the that's the epitome of quality sleep. When in reality, it's like this, you know, seven or eight hours of when you're actually sleeping, what's going on in that time is the things that we don't talk about. So one of the things I believe that you, you know, brought into light was about taping your mouth shut at night, like forcing yourself. And I got to be honest, like I've knew about this before and I tried it and it was something that wasn't very easy right off the bat because you're like, you have a little piece of tape on your mouth. But I think similar to you, after the second day of me doing it was one of the best sleeps that I've had. Mm. And when you have that good quality sleep, it is such a game changer for the rest of your day. It's like you can't you can't buy that type of mental sharpness or focus in your training and your workout. And as you said, like that was just from a couple of days of getting into it. And then I added a 
the the nose dilator, just like even like a breathe right strip, just to open up the nasal pack, uh, the passages. And that even went even, you know, better from there. So I think that's such a huge point is like, we see all the things of don't eat late at night or sleep in a dark room. But in reality, just focus on getting your nose, the, uh, you know, the number one nasal, uh, the passage for airway, and mm. quality sleep is going to be just a carry into everything else that you do, especially attention and focus. Yeah. And you know, the research is starting to come out, even though, see, the problem with breathing is that you can't really make a whole lot of money out of it. That's just, you know, how can you sell it? Mm -hmm. um, okay, you can sell a few books. You can do different workshops. And of course, we can make a living from it mm -hmm. and we can make a good living. But it's, it's not like any other product that you can scale and you can turn it into a multi-million dollar industry. And as a result, this has held breathing back because the lack of promise of profit. Now, mm -hmm. does it make sense that when we breathe through our mouths or somebody might be asking like, how come mouth breathing then is so bad for you during sleep? The problem with mouth breathing during sleep is that it reduces the size of the airway and the airway becomes narrower. And when the mouth is open, the lower jaw, the mandible is hinging downwards. The tongue is more likely to be in a mid or low resting posture. The tongue can encroach in the airway. You're taking cold, dry air into your, into your throat. Mm -hmm. This is causing moisture to be sucked out of the throat, and this can contribute to inflammation. Mouth breathing is activating the upper chest, and you're breathing hard and fast. So mouth breathing is culminating in harder and faster breathing, which increases turbulence in the airway, along with mouth breathing causing the architecture of the airway to be smaller. So when you're breathing during sleep with a narrower airway, there's a greater resistance to your breathing during sleep. In actual fact, the mouth imposes a resistance to your breathing during sleep that's 2.5 times that of the nose. And individuals with a stuffy nose, which inevitably will cause them to mouth breathe, they are two to three times more likely to have moderate to severe sleep disorder breathing. When anybody comes in to me with a history of nasal congestion, I know they don't just have a stuffy nose, they are tired. When people come in to me with asthma, they are more likely also to have a stuffy nose and they are tired. People with anxiety, with dysfunctional breathing, which is more common in people with anxiety and panic disorder, and they are breathing harder and faster during sleep. And there's an increased turbulence in the upper airway. And the problem here is that it prevents them from getting down into that deep, deep sleep. Mm. And deep sleep is when the brain cleans itself, the lymphatic system. And deep sleep is all about restoration. Whereas if we're sleeping with our mouth open and mouth breathing and holding our breath or resistance to our breathing, we tend to have lighter sleep. And when we have lighter sleep, we're waking up feeling unrefreshed mm -hmm. and we should wake up feeling alert. And you can imagine the kids who are going into school and high school and university, the corporate world, you know, mm -hmm. so many, so many have sleep disorder breathing and breathing is not looked at. So we have to think that it's called sleep disordered breathing. Let's look at breathing because it's your breathing during the day, which determines your breathing during sleep. Yeah, you know, it's so fascinating too, because I, I wonder if it's almost that people who have, you know, sleep disordered breathing, and they have these issues, we don't even feel it in our own body when it's like, I remember like once I started actually, you know, taping my mouth shut and actually feeling what that quality sleep felt like, I thought I was getting such good quality sleep before you don't even realize that you're running at maybe 50, 60% of what you're actually capable of. And that's always the thing. And that's the, the selling points that you see from stuff is, you know, find your true potential, you know, with it. In reality, we don't even know what that is because it's always ever expanding mm -hmm. from there. But it's almost, it seems like if some of these practices, if you can just follow them and just see what works best for you, what drills work best. And all of a sudden you realize, holy shit, I was like, <laughs> I didn't even realize that I was foggy in my head that I couldn't focus before. And then you actually see it. It's almost like it, it seems like the best practice might just have to be continuous anecdotes of just people practicing this and just spreading the message in order to get this out. Yeah. And that's where it's starting. There, there have been studies as well, not necessarily like looking at, it's not just enough to breathe through your nose during sleep, but it's a great start. 
Mm-hmm. There was a study published in the journal Laryngoscope in May of 2020, looking at 95 individuals with established obstructive sleep apnea. And out of the 95 individuals with OSA, only 35 of them were nasal breathing. The rest of them were mouth breathing. But mouth breathers had much more severe sleep apnea. They had a much higher apnea hypopnea index. And the mouth breathing group only had 52 events per hour. Now, this is, you can imagine every hour of sleep. It's almost every minute that they have a disruption to their sleep. And 52 events per hour is, is, of course, it's a severe AHI, which is the apnea hypopnea index. Now, the nasal breathing group had 27 events per hour, even though that's very significant as well. But it's almost half what the mouth breathing group had. Now, it's not enough, as I said, just breathing through your nose during sleep. We want also to have a higher bolt score because a higher bolt score will imply that your breathing is lighter and slower and more likely to be lower. Mm -hmm. And with lighter and slower breathing, with good amplitude of the diaphragm, the muscles in the throat, which are designed to help maintain an open airway during sleep, they function better. We we cannot isolate the human respiratory system from upper airway versus lower airway. There's one airway. Whatever happens in the upper airway can travel down to the lower. And whatever happens in the lower airway, which is traditionally seen as the diaphragm and the lungs and the thorax, can travel upwards. And if we have dysfunctional breathing and a faster and harder breathing rate using the upper chest, that's going to impact the upper airway as well. And sleep is about collapse or sleep is about helping to maintain an open upper airway so that there's less resistance to breathing. Mm-hmm. But that is influenced by your breathing in the lower airway. So have you seen, is there a direct correlation with a higher bolt score with better quality sleep? We haven't, there has, again, this is crying out for research. I wrote Mm -hmm. an article that was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. I wrote it with two ear, nose and throat doctors, Dr. Carlos O'Connor and Dr. Guillermo. And we looked at the phenotypes of obstructive sleep apnea across the dimensions of different breathing patterns and using myofunctional therapy. The hypothesis is is strong. Mm -hmm. This is a peer-reviewed article. But as of yet, there has been no research looking at what happens when you you get somebody to breathe through their nose during sleep with the correct tongue resting posture, with a higher bolt score, with light, slow and low breathing. Mm -hmm. That has never happened. There are, of course, a few clinical trials looking at, well, if you have your mouth open during sleep, your sleep quality is impacted. There's one clinical trial looking at breath hold in obstructive sleep apnea, and it's by a Harvard medical doctor called Messino. And basically, he found that you can recognize one of the phenotypes of sleep apnea. So these are one of the characteristics of sleep apnea by virtue of a low breath hold time during wakefulness. So if individuals have obstructive sleep apnea, and if they have a low breath hold time during wakefulness, That implies that they have what's called high loop gain and high loop gain is very unstable breathing during sleep. Mm. So all of the phenotypes of sleep apnea can be influenced by how you breathe, whether it's peak rate, which is the suction pressure at which the airway collapses and loop gain. I spoke about arousal threshold, which is the propensity to wake from sleep. Mouth breeders have lighter sleep. That's the way it is. And there have been studies on this. Mouth breathers tend to have greater severity of sleep disorder breathing. Mm -hmm. And then the final one is upper airway recruitment. How do you actually get the upper airways to do their job during sleep? Because the throat is a collapsible tube. Mm -hmm. And as we get older, the tube is more liable to collapse. Mm -hmm. And men are more prone to obstructive sleep apnea than women. And people might say, well, so what harm is it? You know, you're stopping breathing during sleep. Well, the harm is, is linked to heart attacks. It's linked to stroke, dementia, cancer, mm-hmm. fibromyalgia, and you know different conditions. And also, if you have obstructive sleep apnea, you will typically have reduced heart rate variability. So again, here's where breathing ties in, because it's by practicing breathing exercises that we can help to optimize HRV. And sorry there, because we're building a clinic here at the moment, so you might hear just little background noise here, yeah. so you'll just have to ignore it. No worries. Um, mm-hmm. So, so there's definitely a role and, 
you know, sleep now, 20 years ago, very few people were talking about sleep. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, there's such an awareness and there's sleep centers all over the Western world to determine how do you breathe during sleep. And if you are diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea, the traditional approach is that you wear a CPAP machine. Mm-hmm. Now, a CPAP machine works. However, here's the problem with it. The idea of a CPAP machine is like a vacuum cleaner in reverse. A vacuum cleaner sucks air and a CPAP machine pumps air. Mm-hmm. And it pumps air down your throat as a, at a sufficient pressure to help splint open the airway. Mm-hmm. Many people can't tolerate it. So the uptake rate and the compliance rate probably is lower than 50%. Mm-hmm. So it means that 50% of the population diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea, they cannot tolerate the gold standard of treatment. So the whole realm of sleep is crying out for solutions that mm-hmm. actually work. Mandibular advancement devices can work when the anatomy is, is compromised. Mm-hmm. But if the mandibular advancement device is not fitted or um, calibrated or whatever, that Mm. it can put too much pressure on the temporal mandibular joint. So it can cause facial pain. Surgery, so another option, and this could be maxillary mandibular surgery, whereby the jaws are moved forward by about 10 mil to help open up the airway. Mm -hmm. And these are the solutions. But maybe breathing should be exhausted first. Is the individual breathing in and out through the mouth? Is the person breathing hard and fast? Do they have a low bolt score? Mm -hmm. Where is their tongue resting posture? Mm -hmm. And, you know, start with that. Yeah. Can you just explain the the bolt score a little bit too for listeners? Because I believe there's two different ways that you can do it, right? One is like seated where that is like just the, the bolt score. But then there's another one where you actually do in either walking or light jogging as well. Correct? Yeah. Well, no, there's two different measurements we use. So okay. the bolt the bolt score is done while sitting. Mm-hmm. And the bolt score is that you have a normal exhalation through the nose and you're timing it in seconds until the first definite desire to breathe. Mm-hmm. or the first reaction that your brain sends to resume breathing. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of normal. People will get it. If you breathe out through your nose and then you hold your nose, at some point you're going to feel a need to breathe. Right. That's your bolt score. Mm-hmm. So it's as simple as that. But when you resume breathing, your breathing should be fairly normal. Mm-hmm. Now, the other test that we use is the maximum breathlessness test. And this test is the MBT. And... What this measures is it measures your upper limit of tolerance of breathlessness. So say, for example, if I have an athlete coming in or if I have somebody coming in with a stuffy nose, for example, or somebody with asthma or, you know, if there's an MMA fight or whatever, Mm -hmm. I would want to find out what's the maximum tolerance of breathlessness for that individual. Now, Mm -hmm. if somebody has a stuffy nose, I will always say to them, well, you're going to have a stuffy nose until you can hold your breath for 60 paces. So the MBT goes as follows. You take a normal breath in and out through your nose, pinch your nose, hold your nose, and you could walk or jog. Mm -hmm. And as you're jogging, you're counting every step that you can hold your breath for. And your objective is to get at least 60 paces Mm -hmm. while holding the breath. Now that's a maximum. So that's, that's influenced by willpower and determination. So it's not as good a measurement as the bolt score because the bolt score is it's more objective. Okay. So, so the MBT is much more subjective based exactly. on the person's tolerance and pain tolerance. And yes, gotcha. Okay. Cause yeah. that was interesting when I talked with uh, Peter Lakatos before, um, who's one of your master instructors. And I think he had a, um, I forget which team it was, I believe it was a female volleyball team that was, you know, top, top level um, score. And they did the MBT and they all did very well at that, but their bolt scores were all incredibly low and powerful because, and he said, it's like, because it's the subjectivity of it. These were all high level athletes. They're all, you know, knowing how to push their bodies a little bit more. But in reality, it's like we, I think with high performers too, especially high level athletes, we think that they're at the epitome. They do all these things just naturally when he saw that a lot of the athletes that were coming in had less than a 20 second bolt score. So it's like, it's very common. Yeah. Is it very common? You see that Mm. a lot with high performers? Yeah, we see it. Um, I don't know how to to give you a stat straight off the top of my head, but it's very common. Hmm. That's so, yeah. And it's surprising. And you know, like, I suppose you would think that high performance athletes must have good breathing, not necessarily the case because 
it's the person's everyday breathing, which is going to influence their breathing during their sports. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the other way around unless they are swimming. Swimming is the only sport which probably exerts the biggest influence in your breathing patterns. But mm. however you breathe during physical exercise is determined by how you breathe during rest. Unless you are doing severe physical training. If you do severe physical training, you could reduce the chemosensitivity of the body to carbon dioxide. Now, normally outstanding athletes do have a reduced chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. But what about the athletes that might have some predisposition towards anxiety or panic disorder Mm -hmm. or childhood asthma or perfectionist tendencies, hormonal changes in females? All of those things will impact breathing. And, you know, I think it would be very important for an athlete to monitor their boat score and just to pay attention to it and to improve everyday breathing patterns and also to use your breathing outside of your sport as a means of recovery. You know, it's all about changing states. Mm-hmm. So with ta- top athletes, top athletes might feel, they might feel that they're in great physical shape and that's fine. But we use breathing then as a means of improving sleep, of mm-hmm. improving focus and concentration, of changing states that if they're a little bit anxious going into a situation or if they want to help activate flow states, how do you do that through the breath? But then again, you will have athletes who have disproportionate breathlessness. You know, and these guys can be well-trained but mm-hmm. yet their breathing is excessive for the degree of physical exercise that they are doing. Like I've seen, I've seen former Olympics with both scores of 12 seconds. I've seen an MMA professional fighter with a both score of 12 seconds. If I had a both score of 12 seconds, I would not be getting into a, a fighting ring. I can tell you that. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Cause I saw such a, when I first heard that, uh, it was, it was such a direct correlation into a lot of physical training, you know, coming from a functional movement background, working with, you know, Gray Cook and Brett, where we do testing and we saw like a lot of high level athletes who you see them go out on the field or on the ice or on the pitch, whatever, you know, their, their arena is. And they do unbelievable things. Their athleticism is incredible, but you actually get them in a functional movement test to actually see. And they are showing numbers that would make you look on paper like they're some of the most deconditioned people out there because they, they don't move well, but they just have such a physical ability that it's just they mask it when they go out onto the field and do it. But in the reality, it's like, yes, when you're going out, if you had to play just a specific game today, yes, go to your strengths. But eventually you're building up to a movement injury if you don't correct these things over time. And it seems like it's very similar with the breathing and using something like the bolt score. Like you might be able to do all these great things in your arena, but if you don't have that high bolt score, eventually it's going to catch up to you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting looking at functional breathing and functional movement and the correlation between the two. Mm -hmm. I know there was one paper by Bradley and looked at, the functional movement screen. I know not everybody agrees with the FMS, mm-hmm. but 87.5% of people who passed the FMS were diaphragmatic breeders. Now, if you've got a higher bolt score, you're more likely to breed low. Right. If you've got a low bolt score of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, whatever, you're more likely to breed faster and harder using the upper chest. So one, one theorist said that if breathing is not normalized, movement is not normalized. And if movement is not normalized, at some point, you're going to set yourself up at risk of injury. Mm -hmm. So when people think of the core and they're thinking about the core as being primarily training the abs, Mm -hmm. should we also consider the diaphragm? You know, should we consider that the core is like a box and you've got the diaphragm, which is the roof, and you've got the pelvic floor to the floor, Mm -hmm. you've got the abs to the front, you've got the spinal muscles to the back, et cetera. So, you know, the diaphragm breathing muscle, can we ignore it and it's very common for people to be breathing that little bit higher up. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I've, I've seen people who, you know, have issues with upper uh, thoracic mobility and they get into diaphragmatic breathing. It actually changes their mobility in their upper half mm-hmm. by just focusing on getting into that core and into that diaphragmatic breathing. So you just see how everything is so connected, you know, together. So one of the things, Patrick, what you said about the mouth breathing and nose breathing, which I thought was so interesting is a lot of times when we get into like you can do some light breathing exercise or really focus on the nose. But when we get into higher level exercise and that air hunger comes up, we feel like we want to take that breath through the mouth. 
But what you said and what I thought was interesting is that it's not more efficient to breathe through the mouth. You're not getting, you're not getting more uptake in it. And actually you're creating trauma in your airway. But when we're in that moment, it feels like you're getting more, like you're getting more energy. Is that just because we're just more familiar at that time with breathing through the mouth? Or is it just because it's a bigger airway at the time than the nose? Yeah. During wakefulness, your nose imposes a greater resistance to your breathing than mm -hmm. your mouth. And during sleep, it's your mouth that imposes a greater resistance to your breathing. So if you go for a run with your mouth closed, your nose is a smaller entry for air to enter into the lungs. And carbon dioxide cannot leave the body so quickly through the nose. Mm. So when you do your physical exercise with the mouth closed, carbon dioxide in the blood is going to be higher than with the mouth open. And it's the increase of carbon dioxide that creates the feeling of air hunger. Gotcha. But if you continue doing all of your physical exercise with the mouth closed, the body adapts to a higher tolerance of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about this is that your recovery is much better post physical exercise. And also the fraction of expired oxygen is less. Like if you're doing physical exercise, the objective should be whatever oxygen you breathe into your lungs, that you can get as much of that oxygen as possible to the working muscles. But if you're mouth breathing, you're going to have a greater fraction of expired oxygen. So there's not as good an oxygen delivery to the working muscles as with nasal breathing. So I'd say just for people, just to give it a chance, you know, now it is going to be influenced by the size of your nostrils. If you have a really well-developed airway and wide nostrils and wide nasal airway, you can, you can perform exercise at a pretty high intensity while maintaining nasal breathing. But if you have a deviated septum, et cetera, you might need to use a nasal dilator. Mm -hmm. And you could test this based on the cotton maneuver. If you have one finger either side of your nose and just gently prise your nostrils and doesn't mm -hmm. feel easier to breathe. So some people anatomically have a wonderful shaped airway. They've got forward growth of the jaws. I was giving it, I was doing a podcast with Mark Devine. He's a former Navy SEAL mm -hmm. and just, you know, just come up anatomically. And if you look at his anatomy in terms of look at the width of his face, look at the size of his nostrils, look at the forward growth of the jaws. And of course, somebody who's a Navy SEAL, you're talking about the best of the best. Mm -hmm. And you don't achieve that if you have a face like mine, if you have one nostril that's smaller than the other, if you have a deviated mm. septum, if you have jaws that are set back in a compromised airway. But that's down to poor breathing patterns as a kid. Mm. So, you know, like, it, again, it comes full circle. So, yeah, I can understand why people switch from nose to mouth breathing during physical exercise because the air hunger gets too much. But if you continue doing your physical exercise, breathing in and out through the nose, and I'm, I'm not talking about doing physical exercise, breathing in and out through the nose with excruciating breathing. I'm talking about having comfortable breathing while breathing in and out through your nose mm -hmm. and exposing your body to that air hunger to reduce the sensitivity of the body to carbon dioxide, because it's not oxygen that drives your breathing. You know, it's oxygen mm -hmm. drives your breathing when your oxygen levels drop by half. The primary drive to breathe is carbon dioxide. Mm. Then the question is, well, how, how tolerant are you to carbon dioxide buildup? How sensitive are you to carbon dioxide? Mm -hmm. And if you're overly sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide, your breathing is going to be faster and harder. And if your breathing is faster and harder, you've got increased breathlessness. Mm -hmm. That's the most interesting thing is that because the, the narrative for so long that you heard is just get as much oxygen in as you possibly can. And carbon dioxide is bad. Get it out, get it out, get it out, get it out. When in reality, it's like, no, if you build up that tolerance so you can have that CO2 in you, then you're going to feel like you're not going to gas out as much. Your performance is going to go up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, outstanding athletes should have a reduced ventilatory response mm -hmm. to carbon dioxide, reduced chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. And it's amazing how that information about getting as much oxygen as possible and getting rid of the waste gas carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. how on earth did that get out there? It really is incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. It's the greatest load of nonsense ever put out in the domain of breathing. And I think it's done a lot of harm. You know, we had a meeting this morning, 60 instructors. Every month we have a kind of questions and answers. Mm -hmm. And anything that comes up on the floor. And one of the, the instructors had a client who developed tics. So these are spasms of the, of the, the tongue and spasms in the, in the face. 
And he developed it as a result of one breathing session involving hyperventilation, which lasted for one hour. That's all it took. And after that, he has uncontrollable tics as a result of that. Really? Now, yes, this is the absolute truth. And we had 60 people, you know, our instructors, and our instructors include medical doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been quite a number of psychologists and trauma specialists. And this is the health arm of what we do in terms of breathing. So they were all healthcare providers. So the information then was coming out, you know, because of course the hyperventilation, the hard and fast breathing for one hour caused such an increased sympathetic drive, putting the mm-hmm. body into that total fight or flight response, getting rid of so much carbon dioxide, but the person hasn't recovered from it. That's all it took was one session. And now our instructor is teaching breathe light and small breath toes to help recovery. Mm-hmm. So those are the issues because you know, we have to bear in mind that the breath can be very powerful and you can stress the body and mind. And there are breathing exercises, of course, to stress the body and mind, but there is a point at which too much stress is bad for you. Mm-hmm. And that's where it goes. I've made mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, I have put people into panic attacks. I'm first to admit it. I've had people coming in with chronic fatigue syndrome and I didn't take into consideration just how taxed their nervous system was. Mm-hmm. And I've put them into fatigue. And, you know, you learn from all of these things, but it just gives you an insight into, yes, breathing exercises are powerful, mm-hmm. but at least have an understanding about what is the purpose of this breathing exercise? Yeah. Is it targeting your breathing from a biochemical point of view, a biomechanical point of view, or is it a stress or breathing exercise, or is it an exercise to help dampen the stress response and promote relaxation? You know, so that understanding is not out there, Mike. There's too many ideas out there about breathing and this has held breathing back because I can understand that members of the general public, they hear about the breath and their eyes glaze over because they've heard about breathing a hundred times, take that big breath or whatever the the usual stuff Mm -hmm. that's talked about, get in as much oxygen and get rid of as much carbon dioxide. And that's all it is about breathing. Mm -hmm. No, that's not all that it is about breathing. Yeah. It's interesting. It's uh you know, good friend of mine, former partner, uh, was doing a lot of heavy hyperventilation breathing in the morning. Plus, you know, also combining that with a lot of heavy training as well, you know, for the physical yes. body developed shingles all over his face, yeah. you know, from that. And he was asked like, I wonder if this is a direct correlation. I was like, I guarantee that yes. it is. It's a, and I think it's, it seems like just like, you know, just like the training world and the physical world, like the high intensity based stuff, which it does, it brings out a response. If you're pushing your body to something that you're not used to, the mental side of that might feel like you're building some internal strength that's going on. And you chase that, you know, that moment, like, cause it feels good. And I found the same thing of doing some hyperventilation work. It feels good. It delivers a response in your body, but from doing more stuff like the breathe light, like one of the drills that you had in your book, the breathing cure that, was one of the hardest things for me to do was just the finger right underneath your nose and like, just like just one centimeter out and then one centimeter in and hold that. And I realized after doing that for maybe 10, 15 breaths, how hard it is to just breathe so light. And it seems like it's the same thing. It's like, it's not the, it's not a super sexy headline of, you know, breathe light, you know, through the nose, but you know, fun as, you know, good friend of mine, Paul McElroy said this morning in a post is like the foundations build fortunes over time. It's like, so get the foundational things down. And it seems those are the things that are going to improve the most is just the lighter, like breathe light first, slow, and then breathe light deep. Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. And for people to realize that if you breathe a little bit less air, Mm -hmm. say 30% less air than what you normally breathe Mm -hmm. and you feel air hunger, And even if you do that for three or four minutes, you'll typically have increased watery saliva in the mouth. Your fingertips will be getting warmer. Mm -hmm. And this implies that you're able to influence your blood circulation. Mm -hmm. And you're also able to activate and stimulate the vagus nerve to activate the body's relaxation response. But also what people need to realize is that that light breathing for the five minutes, number one is there's no side effects from it. And number two, that even though you are feeling air hunger and the air hunger should be tolerable during that exercise, your body is getting more oxygen. And this is based on the Bohr effect, which is known since 1904, 
that as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, blood pH drops and the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen reduces. In other words, hemoglobin, which is the protein which carries oxygen Mm -hmm. in the red blood cells, and 98.5% of oxygen is carried bound by hemoglobin. So we should be asking, how can we get hemoglobin to release oxygen to the tissues and organs? Increased temperature and increased carbon dioxide are the two main factors for causing hemoglobin to release oxygen. So if you think of a person going for a walk, they've increased their metabolism and their leg muscles are going to require more oxygen. How do the leg muscles get more oxygen? The harder you move your muscles, the hotter they become. Mm -hmm. And the more you move your muscles, the more carbon dioxide they generate. And it's the combination of the increased temperature, which will cause a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And at the same time, you're producing more carbon dioxide. So it's increasing in the blood. That's going to cause a right shift. And that's going to cause more oxygen to be delivered to the working muscle. Now, if you do your physical exercise with the mouth closed, the carbon dioxide in the blood is going to be even higher again. Because when you do physical exercise with your mouth open, your ventilation is going to increase proportionately. So even though you are producing more carbon dioxide, the carbon dioxide in the blood does not necessarily increase by that much. But if you do your physical exercise with the mouth closed, carbon dioxide does increase in the blood. You know this because you feel air hunger. And as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, it will slow down the release of carbon dioxide from the tissues into the blood. Blood pH drops and those muscles will get more oxygen. And there were a couple of interesting studies as well, looking at sprawly rats. One was published in 2017. They got a group of sprawly rats and they damaged, I think it's the, is it the tibialis muscle or the muscle that runs down the front, the shin of the human being. They damaged the, the muscle in all of the rats and then they divided the rats into two groups in one group they administered carbon dioxide through the skin to the muscle and in the other group they left untreated then they sacrificed the rats and it was the group who had received transcutaneous carbon dioxide they had complete muscle injury repair now how could that have taken place well that could be because of the bore effect because of the increased carbon dioxide getting to the muscle caused more oxygen to be delivered to that muscle. Now, then we have to ask in terms of therapy of the human being, if you do physical exercise and you're doing breath holding and reduced volume breathing, and you have your mouth closed during exercise, you will get more oxygen delivery to that muscle. And that can only be a good thing. And this is maybe why people are explaining that they have an increased recovery post-physical exercise with nasal breathing down with mouth breathing. Hmm. So now, I mean, so with everything here on the physical side of it, is it safe to say that if with every kind of, if you're doing physical training at all, is it really best in a training arena just to always focus on breathing through your nose? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's, it is best. Okay. <laughs> but it's not always going to be achievable because mm-hmm. there's at some point that the intensity of physical exercise is going to get too high. Mm-hmm. And at that point, switch to mouth breathing. But how about all of the the low and moderate exercises? Mm -hmm. Your warm up with nasal breathing. Right. And, you know, even adding an extra load onto the diaphragm, if you think of the breathing muscle, the main breathing muscle is the diaphragm. That's prone to fatigue Mm -hmm. in 50% of athletes. And if the diaphragm fatigues, blood is stolen from the legs to feed the diaphragm. So you have to think that breathing is a function that trumps other functions. The body will always want to maintain breathing because if breathing ceases, the body perishes. So if, for example, the diaphragm is getting tired, the theory is that the blood is stolen from the legs Mm -hmm. and the legs then give out. So if you ever, I know, I'm sure people have seen a runner running down a track Mm -hmm. and they're at full flight. And the next thing is the legs go from under them. Mm -hmm. Is that due to a buildup of hydrogen ion, which is Mm -hmm. causing fatigue, which we can change by breathing patterns. Or is it due to diaphragm fatigue? So mm-hmm. coming back to answer your question, I think I have to be realistic. Yeah. You know, can people do what they can with breathing in and out through the nose, mm-hmm. getting the mouth closed during sleep, etc.? And then there's times that when you want to up the antics, switch to mouth breathing. But then mm-hmm. when you're doing recovery, breathe nose, breathe low and breathe slow. 
Yeah, I thought it's so interesting. Like one of the things that I've known a lot of people in our circles have, you know, worked with is just kind of starting with going for a walk and just breathing mm. through your nose till eventually then going into like a ruck, getting a 40, 50 pound backpack and then doing that as well, then moving it into, you know, moderate and, um, you know, a little bit more intensity exercise. But that's the thing. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people I've seen are doing mouthfuls of water. They're taping their mouth shut during exercise, which I'm like, yes, I'm sure that's good, but you don't have to go completely on that extreme, like still be realistic. If you take a, if you take a breath through the mouth, it doesn't make you a bad person, but it's like, if you do these main things during physical training, it is going to benefit you so much down the line. So, so that's the physical side. And now your, your newer book, the uh, atomic focus, this is really more on breathing for the mental side, right? Mental and focus. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I I feel it's an area that has been very much overlooked Mm -hmm. and you know, We've all heard about get into the zone and achieve flow states, etc. And I have to ask the question, like I was 20 years as a dysfunctional breeder and poor sleep. And I remember struggling in school. I left school at 14 years of age, never to go back. And this was back in 1988, 1989. And I wanted to work as a trainee shop manager, which I did for one year. And my whole objective was to have my own store. That was, that was my, my dream back then. Life kind of directed me in different ways. And I went back to school and I was very driven. I wanted to achieve well in life. And, but for me to get my grades, I had to spend 10 or 12 hours a day studying. And when I look back at my teenage years, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, I was studying so hard, but yet I wasn't accomplishing the grades that I should have got for all that study. And it was because my concentration was out the window. I would be looking at a page, but my attention wasn't on that page. And I remember even in class, of course, you're so stuck up in your head. And if you think of all of the children who are in the same boat and all the kids at university and going into the corporate world, that concentration is demanded of them, but people aren't being taught how to concentrate. You cannot concentrate unless you have good deep sleep and you cannot have concentration and a decent attention span if your physiology is in an increased hyper arousal. Mm-hmm. I was a mouth breather. I was breathing fast and shallow. And if you breathe mouth and fast and shallow, how does the brain interpret it? Well, the brain interprets that the body is under threat. Right. So you have this kid in school or the person in the corporate world or any walk of life for that matter, even the person just in the family home, you know, where we wouldn't necessarily feel that you need a performance. Well, if you're living in your head in the family home, and if you're in that hyper arousal mode, you're not going to be easiest person to live with Mm -hmm. because you'll be on edge. If our physiology is on edge, our mood is on edge and it's going to, we're not just going to pollute our own environment, but we are going to pollute the environment of everybody who comes into contact with us. So concentration and attention span and concentration is our ability to hold our attention on one thing. And our attention span is the length of time that we can hold our attention on one thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about holding attention with an undivided attention, that it's almost that the individual and the task becomes one. And if you were to look at any of the greats, including, you know, if you go to Netflix and you look at Michael Schumacher documentary, which is excellent. And when he has been interviewed prior to his accident, well, you know, when he went during his racing career, he makes a statement and he says, I become one with the car, that there's no differentiation between himself and his car, that he's in that flow state. Mm -hmm. Now, if you suffer from sleep disorder breathing, and if you have faster and harder upper chest breathing, you are not going to become one with the car Mm -hmm. because you have fatigue. Your attention is more likely to be stuck in the head and you're on edge all the time. So it's really high time that education, you know, I just feel for, I've, I've kind of a, a personal agenda here because the education screwed up for me. You know, mm-hmm. I have absolutely no, um, you know, spending 15 or 16 years in formal education. And I achieved the grades that I wanted to achieve. And I went to the university and I got all of that at a price. Mm-hmm. It could have been easier. Yeah. But how many kids are struggling and their self-esteem is affected? Because if these kids cannot do well academically, then they have this stigma that they are not as intelligent as their peers and 
blah, blah, blah. Who was looking at their attention? Yeah. And let's look at mindfulness, which mm-hmm. mindfulness is wonderful, but 75% of the anxiety and panic disorder population have dysfunctional breathing. 75%. And these individuals are going to their psychotherapist and they're going to their psychologist and their psychiatrist. And maybe they're told, ah, sure, pull yourself together, take a few deep breaths for yep. yourself. Yep. You know, we have to go beyond that. Mm-hmm. So it's really high time that for the sake of individuals with poor mental health, can you improve their mental health if they have continued sleep disorder breathing? Mm-hmm. And when you look at people with depression and people coming into me with depression over the years, and I asked them about their sleep, their sleep is dismal. They're waking up feeling exhausted. Mm-hmm. And it's likely that they could have an underlying sleep disorder, which would need to be investigated, but it doesn't get investigated. So yeah. I think, Michael, Mike, for I, the two most important traits if I was to say what is the biggest impact that changing your breathing can have, it's your ability to hold your attention. Mm-hmm. It's your ability to be able to direct your attention to where you want it to direct it upon. Mm-hmm. Because if we are able to hold our attention on one thing, it means that we have some command over our attention. And the same tools that we use to develop our attention span are the same tools that we use to help to bring a stillness between thoughts. Mm-hmm. And atomic focus is for the alpha male. That's mm-hmm. straight off the bat. I, you know, I've had eight or 9,000 people come into me over the years. I've worked face to face with that number of people. Mm-hmm. And I remember back in 2010, I always use an example. I gave short courses and I had 3,000 people coming in, about 3,000 people. But 90 to 95% of them are female. Men were not coming in. And the title of that course was Mindfulness and Functional Breathing. And the man would say, no, not for me, load of crap. So mm-hmm. so I'm not going to use the word mindfulness and I'm not going to use the word functional breathing. We're mm-hmm. using the word atomic focus because yep. who doesn't want mental performance and who, who doesn't want the capacity to be able to change states? Mm-hmm. This is for the individual who wants to improve their performance mentally, but by virtue of per- improving your performance mentally, you're also helping yeah. to reduce agitation of the mind and angst of the mind. Yeah. I, th- I think you just unlock so many amazing things there. And it's such a, a perfect thing to really close this out on just because with focus, I think this is such a thing that is so vital and so important because especially in the Western culture, we praise discipline. We praise hard work, like work long hours, like put in your time when in reality, like you can work for 12 hours a day, but if you're not focused, it's like, you're getting 15 minutes of, you know, productive work in there. When in reality, like it's, it's interesting. A a friend of mine who I've spoken to on um, a podcast before Sifu Harinder Singh, who's a master martial artist talked all about the high performance state and flow state. And his line I've never forgot is flow is natural. It's we that are in the way of it. And it's like, we put ourselves in these positions to not be allowed to get into flow when in starting with the physiology, focusing on the breath in the right way. And it's too like mindfulness too, is one of those words that has just got so diluted down. It it means well, but it, there's so many different definitions that people can put out there now. And nobody knows what the hell it actually is. When in reality, it just comes back to concentration and focus. And especially for the youth and you know kids, and we praise perfect attendance records and give awards there. When in reality, mm-hmm. it's like, well, maybe we should you know, focus on the things that are saying, no, we're giving more focus. You don't need to put in more time. You don't need to put in more hours. Mm-hmm. You need to put in more focus. Into yeah, it. And it f- starts with the breath. It is. It's changing physiology. And, you know, like even again this morning, the only reason I say it, one of the parents, one of our instructors is a child with autistic spectrum disorder Mm -hmm. and the child is ADHD. And she has got the child breathing in and out through the nose because most kids, in my experience, anyway, with ADHD or with autistic spectrum disorder don't nasal breathe and their sleep is impacted. And she is talking about her own child. Now, it takes a bit of work. It's not... It's not something that happens overnight, especially with, with, with ASD. And you're working with the child to help improve nasal breathing. She says the child is much calmer, much better energy levels, better sleep. And that's just by changing physiology. And, you know, that's where it's at. Like, why on earth 
get somebody and it's not going to happen anyway. If you have somebody who is in a state of hyperarousal with lousy sleep and you ask them to, to meditate and to be breath aware, they will do it for a period of time, but they will become so frustrated with it because when your mind is in a state of turmoil, mm-hmm. it's very frustrating trying to pay attention to your breathing. Instead, we need to change breathing patterns to bring a calmness to the mind and to dampen the stress response. And when the physiology is in a better balance, then we can be more breath aware. So in terms of one of the illustrations, you'll see it in the book. I've changed Maslow's hierarchy of needs away from food and shelter and clothing. And this is the hierarchy of needs for the modern individual today. It starts with deep sleep. That's the foundation and good functional breathing patterns, breath aware, body aware, mind aware, self-actualization. Mm-hmm. We will not achieve our full potential if we don't start off with good sleep and good breathing. Yeah, it's absolutely perfect. Right on point. Um, Patrick, thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing from here. I, the work that you're doing is just so vital for everybody to be working with. And, uh, I'm just, you know, so happy that you're putting so much effort into bringing this out to the public and getting this out. So thank you so much. So uh, what is the best place for listeners to absorb more content? What is the best place to direct them? Um, Mm Oxygenadvantage.com and also in terms of social media and also butecoclinic.com. So Mm -hmm. butecoclinic is more our health arm for people with respiratory issues, sleep disorder, breathing, et cetera, and oxygen advantage then for high performance. Awesome. Perfect. Uh, Again, Patrick, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Really appreciate it. Um, Listeners, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you connecting. If you want to get deeper into this breath work with Patrick, you know where to do so. And we will catch you on the next one. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope you came away with great stories and insights that you can use to create more strength and success in your life. Remember now, for a time, you can grab a free copy of the One Day Strength Challenge, the playbook that incorporates proven strength aerobics training along with the skill of intuition to help you create, design, and achieve your perfect training plan that fits around your busy schedule. Just go to www.thebreakthroughsecrets.com and grab your free copy today. It's your life. Make it the strongest possible. Catch you guys later.